0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy?
1: From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, leading the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing the expanding San Francisco Bay, which is coming to a neighborhood near you, as one of our guests on the show likes to say. The reality of higher tides is hard to fathom because we think it happens slowly. But get this. Seas rose about eight inches the last century. Scientists predict that by 2050 oceans in Northern California will rise another 11 inches, give or take a few. That's right, seas will increase more in the next 35 years than they did in the last 100. Like those advertisements for mutual funds say, the past is no guarantee of future performance. The second half hour, we'll hear what property developers and government agencies are doing to prepare for a coastline that will be very different than the one we have known in modern times. We'll hear from former regulator Will Travis, property developer Charlie Long, and design expert Margie O'Driscoll. That's in our second half hour. First, we'll explore how the mainstream media is covering this story. We're joined by J.K. Deneen, a reporter who covers the sizzling property market for the San Francisco Chronicle. Lauren Summers, a reporter covering science for KQED Public Radio News. and Michael Stoll is executive director of the San Francisco Public Press which devoted an entire issue to rising seas last year. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, J.K. Deneen, uh, the Bay Area has a housing crisis. There's a lot of, fair amount of building going on. Uh, where does sea level rise rank in the concern of building housing and addressing a housing affordability crisis in the Bay Area?
2: Um, I mean, in a way, it's at the top, but it's also at the bottom. Um, It's sort of, I would say that um, if you sit through a 10-hour planning commission meeting, there won't be a single person who mentions sea level rise. Um, It's historic preservation. It's affordable housing. It's shadows. It's open space. Um, And there's all these pressing, I mean, right now the planning commission, or the board of supervisors is meeting about. It's an appeal of a 350-unit project in the, the mission, which will easily go 10 hours. And There'll be hundreds of people that will testify, and this is the fourth set hearing, and not one person will mention sea level rise. Um, I think, however, at the same time, sort of in the background of this kind of new urbanism and infill and transit-oriented development and all that sort of thing is, you know, this sense that it's, it's all about climate change and bringing people you know, close to transportation and walking and biking and all that sort of thing. So I think that it, typically it's, um, you know, sea level rise is something that has been, um, at most, major American newspapers covered um, by the science reporters, not so much the real estate reporters. Uh, John King did a great three-part series. Uh, actually, there's two more parts to it, but the third one came out um, last weekend. Um, uh, but it's sort of very much separate from like, the daily battles over every little development that, that comes along, whether it's on the waterfront or you know, on higher ground. So
1: it's there, it's, kind of, it's there for some people, but it doesn't come up as an average concern during hearings. Um, earlier this year, Wired magazine produced a video featuring David Behar, the climate program director at the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, which gives an idea of what sea level rise could look like in the near future, let's take a listen. Well, right now what we have is, is the king tides that happen
3: every year. They're a little higher than what we get for normal high tides. We have an El Nino effect, which involves warming of water, which makes the water uh, higher elevation as well. And then a bit of
1: a low pressure zone with the rain falling. And that allows expansion of the water even uh, still further. As we see the water sloshing over behind us, that's, that's what we're going to see every single day. 2030, 2040, 2050, depending on how climate change and sea level rise go. So that's David Behar with the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission standing right in front of the Commonwealth Club's new building. Um, so, Lauren Summer, there's often, uh, you know, he went downtown San Francisco to do that. It's often downtown gets covered. Uh, there's a bit of a bias towards downtown San Francisco. So when you're covering this, do you look for downtown San Francisco or do you think about other areas that might be affected by sea level rise?
4: I think as journalists, we tend to gravitate towards things that are kind of iconic and symbolic. You know, the ferry building sitting right there. Obviously, a huge number of people work in the financial district. So there's a lot of other places around the Bay, though, that I think have become those places as well. I mean, some people might be familiar with there's a spot of 101 near Mill Valley that gets flooded on a regular basis now. You can pretty reliably go up there and see them shutting down this big bike trail and um, the tech companies are another great example that people kind of, you know, see them right on the bay. So we tend to pick those places because it's something that people can connect to, even if you maybe live across the bay or in the South Bay or something like that. But it's it's getting much easier to find those places than it was maybe five, seven years ago.
1: Michael uh, Stoll, you did a, a deep dive uh, on, on sea level rise recently, you know, uh, extended uh, a whole issue of the San Francisco Public Press on this. What were some of the headlines that you found in that? What were some of the takeaways from looking at what's happening now in the city?
5: Generally, in the past, uh, journalists have been focused on what has been built so far, um, the the ways that the cities are going to have to deal with existing infrastructure. We looked forward and we looked at existing uh, planning uh, documents for new mega construction that's happening right now on the Bay. We counted up 27 major projects worth hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, all all told uh, $21 billion worth of development costs that doesn't include the land um, that's happening now that's either either been permitted by local government uh, or is under construction or has just been completed like the Facebook campus. Um, These are places where they're going to put housing, uh, commercial uh, developments, strip malls, offices, and uh, sports complexes. Um, these are going to be new neighborhoods that have ne- that that have never been uh, inhabited before, and they're going to be with us for generations.
1: Lauren Sommer, he uh, Michael Stoll mentioned Facebook. We often look to them as leaders in the economy in our region. Where are they on this issue? If you tried to talk to them about sea level rise, which is if you look at the maps of inundation maps. Oracle, Google, they're all in some shade of blue area that will they'll be swimming sometime soon.
4: Yeah, I think this summer, uh, you know, we had Measure AA here in the Bay Area, um, which, you know, in a lot of cases, people heard the message that it was to restore wetlands and wildlife habitat, which it definitely was. But sea level rise was part of the case that performance were making about why people should vote yes on it and so we did see the tech companies kind of right before the election come out and support it i would not say that they were a huge part of the conversation it took me months to get them to call me back on this issue but they're very much part of it whether they like it or not i mean facebook has the new campus the new buildings they built they say that they've built it above the flood plain which is what they're saying they've done to kind of prepare for sea level rise right there. But, you know, the Dumbarton Bridge, the freeway that comes in right there, their employees use that. There's a lot of places in the Bay Area that are going to have to talk about this hopefully sooner rather than later.
1: J.K. Jadine, obviously tech companies, if not tech employees, are a big part of the downtown market in San Francisco. Is this on their radar at all? Or like, oh, the city's going to solve it. We got, you're running our business. We can't be bothered with something like that.
2: I mean, I think that the tech companies are tenants. Uh-huh. and they just go into you know whatever space is available they like large floor plates they like old buildings like restore you know they like brick and mortar they like tall ceilings they like i don't think that in terms of their presence in downtown san francisco it's something that they're focused on
1: Not at all yeah. uh, uh, lauren uh, summer when you do a story on this do you make the climate connection that is when you cover king tides or things like that because a lot of times the extreme weather happens and journalists weather people are reluctant to make that connection because they'll get a Attacked. Oh, it's not proven, et cetera. So how do you cover that? Do you actually make that climate tie?
4: Yeah, we, I mean, in KQD, we've we've kind of covered climate change as a regular part of our, our coverage for a long time. So it's always been there. But I, th- I think there are things that King Tides that we try to cover because it's kind of reminding the Bay Area about what's coming. I mean, this was a really, this past King Tides, which were over the winter, were really interesting because El Nino was in effect. And the warmer water expands. And so you had this added layer of the king tide, which has to do with the gravitational alignment of the earth and the moon. You had El Nino. If you get a big storm or a windy day, you've got the added level there of the water. So, I mean, there's these things that I think help the public understand. It's not just about the water slowly rising. You get these events that can be much more problematic.
1: That's exactly what Superstorm Sandy was. It was a full moon, expanding ocean, high tides, and you know, the New York Stock Exchange closes for three days because it's, it's flooded. Uh, Michael Stoll, you think that there's something called climate denial light in the Bay Area. Tell us about that.
5: Um, in some ways, uh, California, Northern California and the Bay Area are uh, an enlightened um, kind of bubble uh, in terms of uh, acceptance of science. In other ways, there's this sort of strange compartmentalization uh, where our public policies acknowledge the science of of climate change and sea level rise in particular, um, but do basically nothing to uh, shape the the shoreline. Um, And that's in part um, responsible for or a consequence of, it's kind of hard to tell, uh, the lack of regulation. Um, on private property that's happening all across the Bay Area. There are more than 40 cities that touch the Bay in nine counties, and none of the counties has a comprehensive plan to rezone uh, the the area that's going to be underwater or the area that's most likely to be underwater. We don't know whether it's uh, 3 feet, 6 feet, 8 feet, 10 feet. There's different ways of calculating it. Um, All of those are being talked about, Um, and, uh, and, and local governments are taking baby steps. Um, by the time San Francisco has a uh, sea level rise uh, plan that, that actually makes recommendations to uh, do things like uh, put any kind of limits on private development, it'll be 2018, that'll be... Uh, three years after the city started studying this, they could be studying it for another five, ten years. And meanwhile, this massive wave of development that's happened um, in the recovery uh, of the economy um, is going to be a done deal. And you're going to see, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of development that we are committing to right now, that is in what is be- increasingly becoming known as a danger zone. And local governments, and state governments, and regional uh, authorities are just now starting to take tentative steps, um, but there's really no political motivation to do so.
1: J.K. Deneen, you cover the property market, the uh, property developers think in fairly long-term cycles, but maybe not as long as, as decades. Uh, is there any awareness that what they're doing now, are they going to, like, once they sell the building, they're out of it, they're on to the next thing, and so the owner is kind of buyer beware?
2: I mean, I think develop, you know, developers follow government plans, all the development going on in San Francisco right now is because of neighborhood planning. It's comprehensive EIRs that covered whole neighborhoods, and from that grows crops of buildings. And so, I mean, I, 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 as a reporter, I get, you know, hundreds of emails about all kinds of things, um, almost none about this issue, honestly. And I, I do think that, you know, to some extent, I'm you know, hearing from the same people that, the Board of Supervisors is hearing from it. They, they're reacting to their constituents, and the developers are reacting to the politicians. And we're covering the whole story. And climate change, I mean, is sort of this overarching cloud over everything. But in terms of the nitty gritty and, and, and how, uh, how policy gets made and how plans get developed or rejected occasionally. It's, it's really just kind of like background noise.
1: Sure, the people who live in the Four Seasons Tower are much more concerned about that new tower right. in front of them blocking their million-dollar views yeah. than any potential sea level rise. Uh, Lauren Summer, when you think about um, issues that, that get the public or even your, in, your editors interested, is it temperature records, fires, seas, drought? You know, is, is sea level rise a hard sell as a story? Because it's kind of so on the horizon...
4: It's one of those gradual climate stories that, I mean, we, I cover this regularly. I'm dealing with this almost every climate story I do, right? We we always say that environmental stories don't break, they ooze, right? And that makes it hard for us to kind of find the news hooks. I mean, once you've done the story of, wow, this is a huge problem for the Bay, what are we building and where are we building it? It is hard to get your editor six months later to be interested in the exact same story, Um, So, I mean, I think the policy developments are kind of very incremental, far in between. I was looking at my old stories from 2011, was the last big major kind of policy move around the Bay to figure out when you make planning decisions, how much do you have to think about climate change? You know, I was like Googling that and I had to go way back to find it. So it's a huge challenge. But I think it's one where we need to think about these things in ways that are not just one development that's not in your city that's across the bay that maybe you won't even read that story, right? I mean, this is a bay-wide problem. Planners are starting to think about it that way. There's definitely a big planning process going on for a regional look at how the bay is going to adapt. But it's, we're far from a moment where that's actually just a regular story that we can find ways to cover.
1: We're talking about Sea Level Rise and Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are J.K. Deneen from the San Francisco Chronicle. You just heard Lauren Summer from KQED Radio and Michael Stoll from the San Francisco Public Press. Uh, we're going to go to our lightning round and ask each of our uh, guests uh, to answer yes or no to a series of questions designed to be a little bit funny and make them a little bit uncomfortable. Um, J.K. Deneen, uh, yes or no, sea level rise is a buzzkill for people lucky enough to be involved in the hot Bay Area property
2: market. Yes, definitely. <laughs>
1: Michael Stoll, the San Francisco Chronicle has done a good job shining a light on the reality of rising seas. No. Lauren Summer, poor people will be especially hard hit by inundation from an expanding bay.
4: Yeah, I think so. Uh,
1: also, Lauren Summer, news coverage of rising seas will spike when downtown San Francisco starts to experience sunny day flooding.
4: Probably. Lots of iPhones down there.
1: Uh, J.K. Deneen, the conversation today may prompt you to ask more questions about sea level rise in your reporting and include in future articles of the San Francisco Chronicle.
2: That would be yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, also, J.K. Denine, the Golden State Warriors' new waterfront stadium in San Francisco will one day be an excellent place to play water polo.
2: It could be, but I just looked up the average age of an NBA arena, and they only last like 25 years. So the oldest arena in this country is Oracle, which is 1966. Wow, and, pretty old. Uh, yeah. And that's like twice as long, old as almost every other uh, arena. 50 so years. It'll be gone.
1: Uh, Michael Stoll, the plan to protect the Warriors arena from rising seas includes sandbags.
5: Yes. Sure.
1: <laughs> All right. That's the end of the lightning round. how they do? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a round. Um, I want to talk about uh, your particular, uh, what you're doing. If you think that climate change or sea level rise will affect you, J.K. Dineen, in your life.
2: Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I would say um, places that I bike, places that I that I camp, places that I um, that I hike. Um, you know, environments that I enjoy um, picnicking, and hanging out with my kids. You know, mm-hmm. maybe vastly different when I'm when I'm an old man, maybe when I'm a grandfather.
1: Maybe not so long. <laughs> oh, Lauren yeah. Summer, how will sea level rise affect you in your life?
4: Sea level I mean, I think we see the effects of climate change all over the Bay Area. We maybe just don't recognize it for most of us. It's the parks where we go, right? The the species we see there now may be shifting out of them. It's drought, which studies show that that climate change makes worse. Um, but I mean, sea level rise is exactly it's. Ex- Floods are incredibly expensive. When the freeways shut down for some reason, that's traffic that we all feel. And so maybe it's not, it's hard to, we tend to think of it as anybody who's right on the shoreline is those are the only people that are going to be affected by this, but it's a very interconnected network that we kind of forget sometimes.
1: Michael Stoll.
5: If you live near the coast, it will affect you. Um, If you live in a state that has a coastline, it will affect you. It'll affect your taxes. It'll affect your taxes right now in this decade It it affected Californians' taxes uh, in June with passage of Measure AA that raised everybody's property tax to pay for uh, natural buffers to protect some of the developers who are putting in uh, housing and offices right now. Um, We're we're currently paying for it, Um, and in the future, we are going to have uh, civilization move further and further into the water unless we collectively decide that we need to do something about it and we need to plan more rationally.
1: Michael Stoll, who are the heroes and villains in this story?
5: The, I think the heroes are the scientists who, um, despite all of the grief that they're getting from, uh, from uh, deniers and, and, and people who are politically posturing, um, are doing the hard work, are looking at their own work with skepticism, wondering how can this be uh, waking up in the middle of the night. I can't even believe that my own model tells me that 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 the oceans are going to rise as much, the temperature is going to change as much, um, and and they're putting it out into the world, and they're brave to do so. Um, uh, I think the, uh, the villains hopefully will be, uh, will at some point turn to the good side. It's the uh, subset of private industry in particular who are making... Uh, motions and mouthing words that sound like environmental sensibility, um, but are actually uh, using our own uh, laws against us and building as fast as they can and making profits.
1: Michael Stoll's executive editor of the San Francisco Public Press. We also have today Climate One, Lauren Summer from KQED Public Radio and J.K. Deneen from the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
2: Uh, hi, Greg. This question is actually for you. As the, as the Commonwealth Club is building right on the waterfront, I'm wondering, either what Alex. regulations <laughs> you had to comply with to do that, and also, did you are you planning at all for you know evacuating the ground floor?
1: The Commonwealth Club has been at the center, leading of this issue. Um, and we are moving down to the Embarcadero, to the waterfront, and we're going to have a front row seat to look at, at, at sea level rise. Uh, the, it's a very green building. I wasn't involved in designing the building. Uh, there's some things about it that could have been better in terms of sea level rise, in terms of the electrical coming in below sea level, and something we're looking at whether we could, could change. Uh, we're going to be right there. And uh, we'll be having these discussions, perhaps, with rubber boots on next time. Um, but thanks for that question. <laughs> Let's go to our next question.
0: In the event of one of these climate change floods, who is it that's going to pay to rescue all the people that are stuck in these buildings and these developments?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I think uh, the, the city has, right now, has to figure out a way to build a, I mean, a seawall of $4, $4 billion, is a conservative estimate. And I think that's a discussion that's, that's happening. Um, so hopefully people won't have to be rescued. Um, but, I mean, if, if, if there isn't the political will to do that, then, yeah, I mean, that's a good question.
1: Too quick, uh, I've interviewed Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey, hit very hard, uh, $60 billion taxpayers to pay for Sandy. She said at some point Uncle Sam won't be there to bail people out. I asked the same of Senator Feinstein. She said, well, that's what the federal government does after earthquakes. Uh, but typically, Uncle Sam has been there, but can Uncle Sam always be There's uh, a question. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
5: Hi. So people have mentioned Measure AA, and I'm just wondering how exactly that is going to be implemented, where they're going to be constructing new wetlands, and how that is going to address this issue effectively.
1: Lauren Summer, you covered that. That was a nine Bay Area County measure, $15 parcel tax. How's it going to work?
4: Yeah, $12 a year, each parcel in oh, the Bay okay. Area. It's a 20-year measure, so they're going to be raising $500 million over that whole time frame. We don't know where the money will be spent. There's a restoration authority, which is kind of like a specially appointed group, and projects will apply for money for project, for to build their project, which is most likely a tidal restoration. The the restoration authority is deciding what particular criteria each project should have right now, like what boxes do they have to check. And then I think it's half the money will be distributed regionally around the bay, and then the other half is kind of up for grabs wherever. So the proponents were saying, you know, every place around the bay is at least going to see some money.
1: Great. Uh, Next question. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Hi. Thank you all. Um, you all mentioned in one form or another uh, the policymakers and the lack of action there. What needs to happen to move the policymakers? Lauren Summer. I was remembering back to 2011, just before that, which is BCDC, Bay Conservation Development Commission, which is a state agency that kind of oversees the development decisions around the Bay shoreline. And I was remembering the meetings they were having, because they were saying, okay, well, if you have a project and you're coming before us, how much do you have to think about climate change? How much planning do you have to do? And it was very tense. I don't know what the right way to describe it. Tense. Yeah, some very angry people um, because some cities worry they don't want to see their jurisdiction taken away. That's their fear, at least. Right. Some you have, what, 100 plus cities around the bay, each with very different visions of what they want their shoreline to be. And so as this agency, BCDC, kind of starts this next round of regional planning, I'm actually really curious to see what the kind of we've had, what, you know, five, six years now of stories about floods, hurricanes, you know, kind of these extreme temperature records being broken. I'm wondering if the conversation has changed, actually. That was maybe a nice answer.
5: <laughs> um, well, theres I, I'm not an advocacy journalist. I, I, I report on what I see, and what I have seen is a fairly la- uh, laid-back attitude toward this. We are um, going to study this, and we are going to do studies in order to put out further studies that will result in recommendations that may or may not include actually doing anything. Um, And and that's the stage that we've been at for a couple of years. And so I think what we need, first off, is a public discussion um, and stories every day on the front page of the Chronicle um, and stories talking to various stakeholders. Um, Beyond that, uh, there are some murmurs of regional cooperation Um, like the Restoration Authority, um, Bay Conservation and Development Commission is the strongest uh, uh, guardian of the coastline or the shoreline of the bay, um, but their jurisdiction essentially ends 100 feet inland. Sea level rise doesn't make a distinction in terms of horizontal uh, uh, distance, it's it's vertical and it can go thousands of feet inland. So there are vast areas, especially in the South Bay, um, where uh, where the, the the water will flood in and, the, and will flood out. Um, uh, and there are there are rumblings about uh, you know the the commission has has talked about the need to do some regional planning. Um, that will probably take another ten years, and we'll probably have another. You know, tens of billions of dollars more development in place by the time they figure out what to do about it.
1: Lastly, we have a quickly last question. Quick question, quick answer.
0: For Michael Stoll, on the issue of why San Francisco continues to grant building permits for buildings large and small in the floodplain, I've read that lawyers, some lawyers are saying that there is no legal uh, way in which the city can deny such building permits. Have you talked to lawyers in the course of investigating your climate change piece on this issue? Uh,
5: yeah, this is one of the loose threads that um, after spending nine months uh, investigating this issue and working with cartographers and then going um, into the uh, environmental impact reports submitted by all of these um, developers that had some of which have been scrutinized by local governments for years, th- there's a, a consistent undertone, of uh, argumentation from from the development community that uh, says that local governments don't have the legal authority to do anything about the issue, and um, we're we're uh, doing further investigation on that.
1: We have to wrap it up there for this segment. Let's give our thanks to Michael Stoll, uh, Lauren Summer, and J. K. Dunin. Let's thank them.
0: And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Katherine Sullivan is a former astronaut and now administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As the first American woman to walk in space, she's seen the big picture, literally, on climate change. She shared her unique view of the world with Climate One last year. When you get even a couple hundred miles away and look back at the planet, you get a really different sense of proportion. The, The thin little membrane of air... It's a little fluid membrane that envelops this ball of dirt and makes it habitable. It's very elegantly and finely structured. It's got a sort of a precision to how it all works. And clearly that the chemistry of that, at least, is being altered. We are the first generation of human beings ever in the history of humankind that has the ability to comprehend and measure our planet the way we currently do with satellites and other instrumentation. We can essentially take a snapshot of global conditions oceanic conditions, atmospheric conditions, and this is what's made it possible for us to have the kind of forecasting we have in weather forecasting and longer-range outlooks. Human beings have always craved foresight about what's coming ahead for them, and they should be prepared. And we're the first generation that has any capacity to develop that kind of foresight in substantive, scientifically sound, actionable ways. And we're babies in terms of learning how to factor that into our decision-making. That's Katherine Sullivan, Administrator for NOAA, who saw Earth from the Space Shuttle Challenger in 1984. Now let's join Greg Dalton for the second half of our program at the Commonwealth Club.
1: We turn now to protecting existing property along the Bay and constructing new buildings when no one is certain where their water line is going to be in 10 or 20 years. Now joining us, we have Will Travis, former Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, the state agency that regulates land along the bay. He's the author of The Lion I Stole at the Top of the Show, saying the San Francisco Bay coming to a neighborhood near you. Charlie Long is a real estate developer and co-chair of a report tackling sea level rise initiative at the Urban Land Institute, a real estate industry group. Margio O'Driscoll is an advisor to an architectural competition called Resilient by Design, an effort to envision how the Bay Area can protect its buildings and way of life from a creeping shoreline. Let's welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> Will Travis, what are our options? We've heard about the sea is going to rise much more in the next couple of decades than it did last century. What are our choices for protecting life and property around the Bay?
6: Well, the two choices are basically fight or flight. You can either build up a wall and try to protect the area, or you can build farther back and higher up. And, okay, so how are we going to go through the
1: process of of deciding which one to do where? Uh,
6: Well, we've got uh, the, the Bay Area has been described as being more balkanized than the Balkans. We have 110 local governments, and 55 of them front on San Francisco Bay. And generally speaking, when a a regional agency comes in and says, we're going to do a regional plan, the local governments object. So we're going through a process now of working through with all those local governments, having them acknowledge the problem, do a vulnerability analysis, and come up with their own plans. And we hope that that mosaic will have some coherency to it.
1: Charlie Long, what are developers doing? Uh, there's still a lot of development happening in, in Mission Bay, other places around the Bay, you know, billions of dollars of investment going in. Uh, you're very connected to the development community, the Urban Land Institute. Uh, what are their plans?
3: Well, I think the uh, Urban Land Institute, uh, which is a non- non-profit organization, believe it or not, uh, uh, that does research, on real estate development uh, is really inter- is very very interested in this problem just from the point of view of creating an informed public that can engage in the issue. And we did this report that uh, uh, Will Tra- Will Travis was uh, involved in called "Tackling Sea Level Rise" back in uh, uh, 2014, uh, and we really observed the the difficulties that uh, exist. Uh, Trav talked about uh, 110 jurisdictions. Um, This is an inherently uh, inter-jurisdictional problem. And uh, the development community is concerned that the the approach to solving the problem is uh, sort of one-off. There's no uh, ongoing effort. We looked at uh, several sub-regional initiatives, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, the ARC project the BCDC was supporting. And they're just, uh, they're sort of episodes in trying to put something together. We need to have an ongoing process. We need to embed this in the capital planning process for jurisdictions. We need to have some regional leadership, which has frankly been absent. Uh, and we need to have some clear standards Uh, for not only new development, but we also need some funding mechanisms to take care of existing development because the magnitude of the problem for existing development is like 100 times larger than the magnitude of problem for new development. New development can basically all by itself uh, protect itself, but as an example, the Brooklyn Basin Project in Oakland has uh, protections built into it, but nothing has been done to protect downtown Oakland. And so we need to have a funding source. We need to identify funding sources that take care of uh, protecting existing development as much as we need to have standards for new development.
1: So if you think the Bay Area is expensive now, wait till we have to start to pay for all of this (laughs) stuff. Uh, More fun coming. Okay, Margie O'Driscoll, what have we learned from Superstorm Sandy Uh, People in New York anticipated something like that happening, scientists anticipated it, and they thought they had a couple of decades to plan for it, and then the New York Stock Exchange was flooded and Manhattan went dark earlier than even some of the people who were looking at it realized. What have we learned from that?
7: Well, I think it's fundamental human nature that we don't want to believe the bad things that can happen. We want to be optimistic. We want to believe that only the good will happen. And I think that what we're starting to see in the Bay Area, where we have a a strong belief that climate change is real and things are changing, people are actually beginning to see those changes in their communities they're seeing creeks overflowing they're seeing the water as we saw a little earlier the water shifting over the embarcadero that's that sort of new imagery so people are starting to actually see with their eyes the changes which are happening here on the planet and here in our bay area it used to be if you asked my son who's 17 what climate change was. He said it was something to do with polar bears in Alaska. And I think that the reality is people are starting to see it now in our community. And once you see it in your community, it feels a little more real. And I think that um, there's a growing awareness here within the Bay Area that uh, we're starting to see it. And some of our communities around the Bay who are suffering the most with equity issues and other kinds of vulnerability are those most in line with the flooding and and sea level rise, which will be happening around the bay. And that's a a sort of a growing issue for, I think, a number of our mayors and small communities around the bay, thinking some of our most vulnerable populations are in line for a changing bay. And the bay has always changed, right? So the bay that we know it today, of people like me who were born here in the last century, you know, in 1840, it was a different bay before the gold rush. And so it changed then, and it's changing now. And how do we all learn to adapt and respond to the change that we're starting to see now in the Bay that really defines us as a community?
1: Marjorie, Jessica, I want to stay with you and ask some of the positive and negative uh, stories from that New York-New Jersey experience. Uh, there were some things that were funded, very large levels, and there also was the story of Hoboken, which was flooded and flooded uh, had a campaign to, to build some levees to protect it from happening again, and the city said, meh, no thanks, we don't want those ugly things, so they're vulnerable for it to happen again. And that, that's a case where they could have had money to protect themselves, and they chose not to.
7: So I'll step back and say that he's giving me the perfect setup to talk about the real reason that I'm here, which is that um, actually there are people in the Bay Area who have been concerned about this issue, and it has to do with regional agencies like BCDC and the city of San Francisco, and also corporations who are interested in creating a Bay Area-wide competition called Resilient by Design that's based on a competition that happened after Hurricane Sandy in New York. Um, CNN called this competition, which was very successful in New York, one of the best ideas of 2013. And it was an idea that you could actually use design thinking and designers to go into communities and actually work with communities to develop resilient solutions to protect communities which were severely damaged after Hurricane Sandy. And the reason that the federal government was interested in supporting this effort, although they were a little skeptical I will say in the beginning, um, is that uh, they saw it as an opportunity to build back stronger. Um, for anyone who was here in the 1989 earthquake um, knows, we tried to b- rebuild back and r- think about what San Francisco and the Bay Area would look like after the 89 earthquake. Well, Superstorm Sandy was so much worse, so much bigger than anything that we saw in 1989 that we know that we need to be better prepared here in the Bay Area to respond. So the idea of this competition is that it would happen all throughout the Bay Area. We would identify sites of great vulnerability, and design teams would work quite intimately with communities to try and develop solutions and responses which are not just a wall along the Bay, but potentially give a community benefit. And that is what happened after Hurricane Sandy. Uh, Design teams went into communities and worked with communities to help resolve issues that were endemic to some of those areas, Hunts Point, Staten Island, other neighborhoods around the uh, three states which were affected by Hurricane Sandy. And so what were the big ideas? So some of the ideas were walls, but others of the ideas were a restoration of uh, oyster beds, which had been a, a huge industry around Staten Island, Others were, you know, how do we create more parkland around lower Manhattan that serves essentially as a storm barrier, but doesn't feel like a wall. It's actually something you could enjoy and, and walk along and be a part of every day as part of your daily life. So the idea of this competition is how do you work with designers in community to help bring benefit today that's also going to create a more physical resilient structure over time to respond to the challenges that we will see with sea level rise and storm surge.
1: Well, Travis, if someone lives in Piedmont or up near Mount Tam or on the ridge in San Mateo, live away from the bay on high elevation, why should they care about sea level rise?
6: Well, because they might want to drink water or flush their toilet or get to their job or get to the, their kid's school or um, eat. Dri- drive to the airport. Anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's... it's uh, It is fascinating. People tend to look at sea level rise maps and they always then look, where's my house? Oh, I don't have to worry about it. Uh, But we have an interconnected system. If you think about the bay, it's largely surrounded by transportation infrastructure. It's either BART lines, rail lines, freeways, airports, ports. So our whole transportation system, which is the whole aerial system that allows us to move around... Uh, is all right at the bay shoreline. So uh, it doesn't matter where you live. Uh, When you have sea level rise, it'll impact you. you Even even you, Greg, up there on the
7: hills. Uh. (laughs) I was just going to interject that most of our sewage treatment plants are also along the bay.
1: Charlie Long, uh, you develop property. Uh, Have you looked at bay, front property, uh, union, uh, Jack London Square, et cetera? Where are you investing and
3: putting your dollars? Well, my projects are in the uptown district of Oakland, uh, and so I have, not, um, I have not developed, looked at property uh, that is uh, affected by, uh, by sea level rise. I will say that uh, having been a city manager of four places, uh, I don't think that this problem is a matter of a lack of authority on the part of jurisdictions. I think it's a lack of will. Uh, because, frankly, jurisdictions could put uh, provisions in their general plan that essentially establish a standard for uh, new development in terms of what they have to protect against. And so to the extent that there is an aroused and aware public that demands that kind of standard, that is perfectly possible to do.
1: Will Travis, tell us some places that you think are doing a good job. If I were to think about where I'm going to move in 10 or 20 years, what are some neighborhoods developments around the Bay that are doing it right? Tell, make us Lift
6: us up here. Treasure Island is a spectacularly elegant solution. The only thing wrong with Treasure Island as a new neighborhood is you have to rely on the Bay Bridge to get you there. In an earthquake, it has the stability of soup, And it's going to flood. But other than that, it's a fine place. (laughs) And they have come up with a, a solution which deals with the earthquake safety by compacting the material. They raise the ground elevation. They keep it in a small area so everybody will be within walking distance of a ferry. And then they reserve the space around the outside so that over time they can build an ever higher levee and put in place... A financial mechanism so that the people who live there will pay for it, not us taxpayers. Uh, there are a number of projects along the shoreline that are doing this. Uh, but I I, I want to take an issue with something Charlie said. I don't think it's will. I just don't think we know what to do. Because you can establish a standard, but what's the standard? Because Uh, I can assure you, I can guarantee you that the way to make money is to get an expert on sea level rise to tell you exactly how high the sea will be at any day in the future, and bet against them. And then get a second one, and that way you're assured you won't lose any money, and then get a third one, and then you start making money. Nobody knows. It's just going to keep going up higher and higher and higher. So I think the challenge is to design and build our cities in a way that it doesn't matter, so that we've designed resiliency into them with new techniques for building, buildings that are there for only a short period of time, buildings that can be taken apart and moved, buildings that will float. This is why I think the design competition is such a wonderful idea. When we talk about resilience, I mentioned we're trying to build resilient cities and mentioned it to my daughter. She looked at me and she said, "What are you talking about, Dad? Rubber buildings?" Nobody knows, but for having a design competition that will generate images of this is what it could be, that I think will stimulate people to think new ways, new ideas. but I, I think the challenge is we're aware of the problem. We just don't know what to do because we've never faced this before. Dealing with uncertainty.
1: Um, there's actually a new term volatility, uncertainty, chaos. There's a new military term uh, for encompassing these changes. Uh, We're talking about sea level rise at Climate One with Charlie Long, a real estate developer, Margie O'Driscoll, a design competition expert, and Will Travis, former head of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask Will Travis, uh, yes or no, new waterfront buildings uh, bring profits for investors and tax revenues for cities. Both have an incentive to avoid thinking about rising seas that may crash their party. No. No. Margie Driscoll, you formerly worked for the San Francisco mayor's office. Nobody in San Francisco government has the knowledge and power to stop waterfront development at risk from rising seas. No one at City Hall really owns this
7: issue, yes or no? I think they're working on it.
1: Charlie Long, uh, some owners of property along the Bay are going to lose money when the market realizes those assets come with a risk that was undervalued for a long time. Yes. Charlie Long. And then those property owners will ask for a government bailout. Yes. <laughs> will Travis, uh, climate disruption will hurt Americans more than even your liberal Berkeley friends realize.
6: Why are you, are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> Berkeley realizes
3: everything.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yes. You take an issue. Yes. yes? Yeah.
1: Um, Also, Will Travis, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission tried to impose stronger rules on waterfront development and was beaten back by the real estate industry. No. Margie O'Driscoll, uh, you're a former head of the San Francisco Arts Commission. Art can help people envision and create waterfront defenses that are beautiful and functional, creating public spaces that are even better than the ones we have now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Art is part of it. Charlie Long, if a distant relative passed away and left you their house in Stinson Beach, what would you do? Sell it as fast as possible or keep it and pass it on to future generations?
6: Party time.
3: Oh, gee. Um, I would keep it.
1: Margie O'Driscoll, if you were designing a new building on the waterfront, where would you put the computer servers and electrical panels?
7: In the same place that they're ending up in Lower Manhattan, which is on the roof. And where are yours for this new building um, that you're doing?
1: I'm not sure.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. That is, how'd they do? I think they did pretty well. <clears throat> well, Travis, you've talked about sort of this uh, changing waterline, this thing that's been constant. It's going to be changing in our life. And some people think, as Margie Driscoll touched on earlier, that there's sort of a generational baseline. Each generation knows the bay that's different than the previous generation. And uh, we kind of mourn the loss of something. But future generations might just accept a bay that is, you know, defended and very different. And we're attached to things the way they are. But future generations may have no problem with this. That's what they've always
6: known. No, I th- my personal experience is that's quite true. Um, BCDC got interested in sea level rise when the New Yorker uh, published some articles in 2005. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert wrote a series called "The Climate of Man, and she talked about a meter sea level rise. And I asked my staff at BCDC to show me what that would look like, and that was my own personal oh shit, moment. because what the bay will look like with a meter of sea level rise is pretty much what it looked like in 1849, because we've filled 240 square miles, but we've only filled it high enough to get it above sea level of the past. So the water will just go up over, it. it'll just search for that original shoreline. So climate change came to me 10 years ago, so I was 63 years old. My students at Berkeley have had climate change all of their lives. So when I talk to them about this issue, they just look at me and go, yeah, sure. And for them, the notion of a shoreline which is moving is something they just accept. For me, the shoreline is where the shoreline always was, and that's where it'll always be. So this notion of a moving shoreline and designing and building to accommodate that is very difficult for me But the students find it challenging and interesting.
1: Charlie Long, the Bay Area governments have designated some areas for preferred housing development because we don't have enough housing in the Bay Area. There should be 50,000 more units of housing built every year to satisfy demand and uh, lower prices and and give people to be able to live near where they work. Uh, Yet some of those preferred areas are precisely in the kind of... At risk areas, we're talking about the
3: the overlap between the preferred, the priority development areas and the inundation areas is extraordinary, and um, uh, in some ways, I, I you know it, you sort of look at it and you say, what were they thinking? Uh, and so that issue needs to be addressed uh, uh, very very clearly in terms of development. Uh, standards. Uh, new development, frankly, to the extent that, and uh, Trav and I can talk about whether a standard is important or adaptability uh, and resilience is important, but new development can accommodate uh, sea level rise in a variety of ways because it's, uh, it can anticipate. The issue of Uh, The magnitude of the problem for existing development, though, frankly, is maybe 100 times greater in terms of the funding demand that is required. And to the extent that uh, jurisdictions are ignoring the existing development impacts, as well as not establishing standards for new development, um, we're going to end up, with catastrophes. So this is a two-part problem, existing and new, and both of those need to be paid attention to. And frankly, the leadership so far, except for Will Travis, (laughs) who has provided a huge amount of leadership, and BCDC has provided a huge amount of leadership, the leadership has not been at the regional level uh, at a sufficient amount.
1: Charlie Wrong is a real estate developer. We're talking about sea level rise at Climate One, we're going to invite your participation in the eight minutes we have left, so please go to the microphone and join us with your brief uh, comment or question. Welcome to Climate One.
6: Yeah, um, isn't all this really talking about moving the deck chairs on the Titanic if we don't control greenhouse gases?
1: Well, Travis, wasn't that long ago that even talking about these things was considered defeat. That,
6: that's right. The, the problem we have is, we yes, we should and we must control greenhouse gases. It's just absolutely essential. Uh, we don't want to make the problem any worse. The difficulty is the sea level rise we've experienced and we will experience in the future is largely a result of the greenhouse gases that are already in the system. So we can slow the rate of sea level rise, but we can't stop it. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
5: My belief is that uh, at some point we will either be living in the new Venice or we will have to leave the Bay Area. As far as I know, I've heard that sea level will rise uh, six feet by 2100. Um, If that rate was steady, that means uh, that in 15 years we'll have one foot of sea level rise. Now, do you think that we will be able to live in a a San Francisco-type Venice would like to
1: tackle that. Marjo Driscoll?
7: Yeah, I think that uh, you're starting to see some really interesting models being implemented around the world. You know, we're not the first people who've dealt with a change of an overabundance of water, which I just have to add is slightly ironic when you think that we're also in a drought at the same time. But So there are lessons that we can learn, especially from the Dutch, uh, but also from other communities around the world about how people have adapted how they've lived and they've made changes. And we are going to have to make changes in how we interact with the Bay, because the Bay line is going to be changing. What those, what those solutions are, I, I leave up to the great design minds of our Bay Area and the world beyond. I don't know what those all are, but we need to start getting in there and start figuring out what those might be and how those can protect some of our most vulnerable communities. Kelly
3: Long? I just uh, I, uh, agree with everything that Margie said, and the, the challenge we face in the Bay Area, as well as uh, throughout the United States, is nobody's in charge. Uh, the Netherlands has been dealing with this problem for 500 years. and But there's a di- different decision-making mechanism there uh, where, okay, we need to have houses that float. We need to have uh, byways that uh, bypass uh, uh, developed areas. And we need to develop a decision-making mechanism here in the Bay Area that essentially recognizes the interconnectedness of this problem, because to the extent that we do not recognize the interconnectedness of the problem and develop policies that create alignment among the 110 uh, cities and counties and the multiple special districts and the multiple transit agencies and the utilities, we are going to not be successful at dealing with this problem. It's, a, it's not a problem that is insolvable. It's a problem that we need to get alignment among all of the decision-makers on how to solve it.
1: And Will Travis, how is the Bay Area going to decide? Some people think that downtown San Francisco will be protected. There's so much money there, they will find a way, 4 to $6 billion for a seawall. But what about Vallejo, Alameda, East Palo Alto, places where people are more vulnerable and have less money to protect themselves.
6: Well, unfortunately, sea level rise is like every other problem. I have a colleague at Lawrence Berkeley Lab who said he thinks that the final slide on every presentation on climate change should always be the same. And that slide says, and the poor get screwed. Mm. I don't know where to go after that one. Yeah, um,
1: it reflects the overall overall system. Let's wrap up. I want to end by uh, asking each of you what gives you hope. We've looked at some seeds, uh, you know, coming to our our doorstep. Uh, Margio Driscoll, what gives you hope?
7: I think that design thinking is going to help us. Um, think our way out of this. And I say that not just in the physical structure of terms of architectural and design solutions to sea level rise, but in new ways of thinking and how we live our lives in much the way that Travis originally started his remarks.
1: Looking to nature for some of the solutions, perhaps. Charlie Long, what gives you hope?
3: I think uh, the thing that gives me hope is that um, uh, we have a lot of effort that is going on now Uh, that, frankly, uh, is greater than two years ago. And so I think the momentum is starting to build. Margie's uh, organization, frankly, is a a good example of of the kind of momentum that is building toward creating the kinds of solutions that we need to have for this problem.
1: Good things are happening. Will, Travis, last word, what gives you hope?
6: Uh, In the Bay Area... Climate change isn't being addressed as an environmental problem. It's being addressed as an economic imperative. And the business community is actively engaged in this because they've realized there are a lot of business opportunities if you deal with climate change aggressively. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what problem we're dealing with. It's the bottom line that matters. And they're putting the bottom line into this. We've been talking about sea level rise with Will Travis, former head of
1: the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, Margie O'Driscoll, a design expert, and Charlie Long, a developer in the Bay Area. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank you all for joining the conversation and thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club. You can listen to the podcast and iTunes at our website, climateone.org. Thank you, everyone, for coming and joining us. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.